Hi, welcome to the Slate Spoiler Special Podcast. We are here today to spoil Joker, the new movie from Todd Phillips, giving us the origin story of the infamous green-haired Batman villain, played by Joaquin Phoenix. Joining me in the Slate studios, we're all here together, which is nice, is uh, Forrest Wickman, Slate's culture editor. Hello. Hey, Dana. And Sam, welcome. Hello. Uh, Thanks for coming in. Um, Okay, so as usual, I like to start these by going around the table, asking just for a very brief reaction so people know whether we loved or hated going in. I was thinking about the reason I do that, and I think basically it's because I don't want this to feel like we're reviewing the movie. I want this to feel like we all wrote reviews, like pretend that we all wrote our reviews and they're up there and people can know our basic argument and we're kind of hashing out stuff we didn't get, spoiling, etc. Anyway, so starting with you, Sam, uh, thumbs up, thumbs down, send your friends or drive your friends away. I, uh, I, I hoved it. I laded it. Um, yeah, it's, a, it's hard for me for me to decide. Like, I am not sorry. I watched it. It is interesting. I think it is maybe, you know, not as, well, definitely not as smart as it thinks it is. Um, it's probably important in what it reflects, although I don't know how much it knows what it's important about. Um, so, thumb very much sideways. Hmm. Okay, yeah. Or are we making it important by talking about it? We can get to that too. Forrest, what about you? You were in my screening last night, but we didn't get to talk after. Yeah, I sort of expected I might be coming on here as the Joker defender. I think I would have happily been, for example, the Dark Knight defender. Like, I was in college when Dark Knight came out. I'm a sometime defender of that movie and sometimes those types of movies. And I really did not like this movie. I found it even just boring for most of the first two thirds, I would say. Um, It just, I found it neither insightful nor entertaining. And, you know, I think it works best as a showcase for Joaquin Phoenix. And in that respect, I think that's just a kind of movie that I find myself not as interested in. I'm, I'm not interested in movies that are primarily showcases for actors. Whereas I feel like you, Dana, like you really liked You Were Never Really Here, which is a movie that this movie reminded me of a lot, actually. That's another movie in which Joaquin Phoenix plays a somewhat deranged uh, Yeah, mentally ill, violent killer. person. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I did like that movie, although I didn't uh, unreservedly worship it like some critics sure, did. Sure. I actually thought the ending was terrible. Like I really disliked, I would say, the last 15 to 20 minutes of that movie. Um, but yeah, I very much admired his performance in it. And he's that kind of actor. I mean, maybe we can get a little bit to this later, too, I hope, when, in talking about the specifics of this performance. But obviously, he's the kind of actor who's drawn to extreme, yeah. intense, incredibly demanding roles where you have to change your body and change your voice and kind of mutilate yourself. And there's moments where that leads to really interesting choices, like The Master or You Were Never Really Here. Even mm-hmm. if you don't love that movie, you can't say it's not like a, a very interesting choice for him to make as an actor, right? Like w- working in essentially sort of the art film world with this Scottish director, Lynn right. Ramsey. Or, uh, you know, it could lead to an extreme biopic performance, like his Johnny Cash performance. Um, 
But then down another road that's not maybe so healthy for him or us or the world, it can lead to things like I'm Not There, that strange yeah. sort of fake documentary he made I'm not, with Casey Affleck. I'm still here. Oh, yeah. I mix I'm it up with the Bob the Dylan Todd one. Haynes one, yeah. Right, yeah. And plus the fact that he made that, plus you were never really here. It all gets it, very yeah. confusing. Mm-hmm. But anyway, he can go two, two ways with that. And I feel like the Joker is sort of the bad way. I'm a little sorry that he chose this role, although I want to get to the things that I think he does, the few things that elevate this movie. I mean, I'm going to go even harder than you two guys. Like, I'm an inch away from being the finger-wagging schoolmarm on this movie. Yeah. And uh, I think we should get a little bit into the background of its reception and stuff to talk about that. Because I just read on my way here that the NYPD is going to be deploying random cops to different theaters that are showing it this weekend, right? I mean, there is, by now, a sort of real-world violence association with this movie, although no threats or particular acts of violence have occurred in relation to it yet. But, Sam, do you want to talk about its, its reception at TIFF? Yeah, I mean, well, this movie is... That's the Toronto uh, Film Festival. Yeah, yes, yeah, I mean, this movie's had a really kind of unusual path to theaters for what it is, which is, you know, it's sort of giant, you know, Warner Brothers comic book movie. Um, it debuted at the Venice Film Festival, um, which I don't think has ever shown a superhero movie before. Um, won the Golden Lion there, the top prize, um, then went on to the Toronto Film Festival, which is often the, you know, the launching pad for kind of fall Oscar campaigns. Got, I think, still a pretty strong reaction there, although, of course, there was backlash was already starting to set in just because the reviews out of Venice were so amazing that it was like, how can the Joker movie actually be this good? And then it's, you know, just been this huge kind of, I don't know, football in the discourse since then. If you follow sort of film festivals and those sorts of movies, this this kind of back and forth discourse is pretty common, but it never happens with a movie that's like has this big a profile that's basically, even though he's not in it, it's basically a Batman movie. Right. This is not blue is the warmest color that only a few people are going to see in art houses. Right. Anyway. So it's been this very weird and interesting and kind of exhausting and tiresome um, <laughs> like slew of, of think pieces and backlash and counter backlash and accompanied by these, you know, apparently, according to law enforcement, very kind of real and and credible threats of violence accompanying the screenings when it opens. I, and I th- believe some movie theaters are, have actually been having like active shooter training for their uh, employees. Right. And, and Aurora, and, Colorado is not going to show it. Right. right. I mean, the town where there was a shooting in 2012, I right. think it was, that so, killed seven people. So the extent to which is kind of the movie itself as a cultural object has anything to do with that or not as a, a kind of a matter of, of debate, but that certainly like has factored into, you know, all the things that are kind of in the air as it's finally ending up right. in theaters. How would you characterize the ecstatic Venice reviews and how would you characterize the, you know, backlash think piece reviews? I mean, the, the Venice reviews are basically, you've just never seen a movie like this. There's never been a superhero movie like this. Um, there's never really been a movie like this. Mm. Um and then the backlash was basically. <laughs> I, well, of, I needed to audibly. And yes, and then the backlash there. is basically yes, there has uh, because this like, movie would tell you if there have been other movies like this. Yeah. I mean, it refers so often and so obviously to Taxi Driver and King of Comedy. It's like practically a remake. Yeah, it's like know, bro, the little the backlash is a little like bro, do you even lift? Like, I mean, yeah, it's so full of especially. I mean, you know, Scorsese is like a executive producer on this movie. His name is like literally on the print. So the idea that it's not um, connected to those is bizarre. The idea that it's being done with, you know, a guy who ends up wearing, like, clown makeup at the end is uh, whether that puts it in an entirely different category or not, I guess. Is a, I, again, a, I would debate. say that it's it's Joaquin alone who elevates who elevates this up to being worthy of the level of discussion. Right. Yeah. Have, I mean, have we even said who directed it? Because 
to me, the surprise was less that a comic book movie was getting all of this attention. I mean, we're coming off a year in which Black Panther was nominated for Best Picture, for example, uh, and Dark Knight had a similar conversation around it. What was more surprising to me was that it was the Todd Phillips movie. (laughs) Um, You know, so Todd Phillips directed this movie. He's previously best known for the Hangover movies, I guess. He also did Old School, right? Yeah, I think he did that run of Will Ferrell Mm. comedies maybe in the early 2000s. Right, the quote-unquote frat pack movies. Um, And, you know, he's good at comedies, but I was not terribly impressed by his direction of this movie, which uh, mostly amounted, I think, to just like stealing from other filmmakers without contributing much original. We should get into the actual yeah, movie. Yeah, <laughs> I have tons of specific specific moments to mention vis-a-vis that. I yeah. mean, just moments where this movie was, I don't know, I guess I would say just smotheringly over-directed, you know, and, uh-huh. and, and in a way that plagiarized a Such as the first moment in the movie. All right, so that's a good, good place to start. Let's set up where we are at the beginning of Joker, where and when we are. Sure, right. I think we, we basically know when we are, partly just from the Warner Brothers logo at the beginning of the movie. It is the Warner Brothers logo from the 1970s. And then the camera s- slowly moves in on Joaquin Phoenix playing Arthur Fleck is the name of his character. Fleck, I guess, is like a, he's sort of like insignificant. Exactly. Yeah. It em- emphasizes that he's like this aberration and that he's small and insignificant. Um, indeed, he's in this depressing uh, apartment and he's putting on his makeup. Meanwhile, the radio. You were talking about over-directed. The radio is just, like, if you want to know what kind of New York City it's in, it would probably be enough. I mean, technically it's Gotham, but really it's New York City. It would be enough just to be, like, 1970s New York, and people know what that means. But the radio is literally talking about how the entire city is buried in trash. The word (laughs) garbage repeats over and over again. And there are super rats. Those are the only super things in the movie, in fact, are super rats. Yeah, they're in the middle of a garbage strike, which evokes 1970s New York and the big garbage strike that happened here, but also is just, as you say, just such choking symbolism. You know, we're in a corrupt world. We get it. And later... There's slightly more to it, though it's still a little eye-rolly, where um, I won't spoil exactly the line later, but um, Arthur Fleck says something about, uh, well, the line is, what do you... What do you? What happens when you? Or what? What do you get when you cross a mentally ill loner with a society that abandons him and treats him like trash? So is, yes, he I'm is glad the you trash. Got to that. that comes up in the climax, so we'll get there. But I think that is that may be the worst line in the in a movie that's full of some pretty honking bad dialogue. I mean, it just basically lays out the theme of the movie at the climax of the movie and leaves absolutely no room whatsoever for interpretation. Yeah. Um, and meanwhile, so Joaquin Phoenix is putting on his makeup. I mean, it's it's really creepy what we see, but we then see it like eight more times over the course of the movie, which is um, this character, Arthur Fleck, attempting to smile and very much forcing a smile while clearly being very depressed and sad. And in this case, I think there's a literal like clown's tear. It's it's a tear, but it smudges blue makeup that runs down his uh, cheek. Yeah, and I believe, well, it's not right there, but later on there's an equally corny musical cue for that, which is Jimmy Durante singing Smile, mm-hmm. Smile Though Your Heart Is Breaking, etc., right? I mean, that song comes up a couple different times, including in the Chaplin movie they watch. Every music cue, insanely overdetermined, yes. right? When when the Cream song kicked in during the sort of climactic... White Room? Yeah. Is it a reference to the Asylum? 
He ends up in a know. white room. I, I don't, don't actually know. know what that song's about. Yeah, I mean, I, that song I think I think is just full of that kind of headbanging mm-hmm. um, surrealist imagery. Or, but it's but to me is very much associated with sort of a, a state of nihilist violence. Maybe because it's been used in other movies. And the way that, that that plays through also kind of reminded me of um, I guess it's Michael Mann's uh, Manhunter, where they use like Inagata Devita for that like single take of you know violence and yeah, it's that moment is, that yeah. every big man movie has to have. You yeah. know, where there's some blast of classic rock while Proto-metal. menacing things are happening. Yeah. Um, okay, so we're in this Gotham of the 70s, and Arthur Fleck is employed as a clown, right? The reason he's putting on the clown makeup is he's going to work. He works for this place called Haha's. It appears to be some sort of clown agency where the clowns just show up, get their stuff out of their lockers, and head out for their clown day. You know, like you just go down to the clown agency, get yourself a clown, <laughs> as one does. And so we see him freelancing as uh, dancing in a hospital for kids and uh, in the first big action scene, twirling a sign, right? Being one of those sign holders who's sort of doing a little novelty act with their sign in in full clown makeup. And then we get the first of many scenes. You're right that this movie feels very long for us, although it's only two hours and two minutes of Arthur Fleck being horribly mistreated by the world around him. So this gang of kids runs by. And I really wish I could see it again to see what the racial makeup of the gang of kids was. But very much appear to be Latino to my Mm -hmm. eyes. Yeah. Right. But I think this movie also tries really hard to be extremely apolitical and both sidesy. So we'll get to this later. But the second time that Arthur Fleck is beaten down and literally kicked when he's down is by a bunch of white bros. Yeah, a bunch of sort of rich finance white guys. Um, so anyway, this gang of kids steals his sign, uh, runs away with it, and basically kicks the shit out of him in an alley. Um, that's the first scene that we see him being humiliated. And I would say, I mean, tell me if I'm wrong, but I think for the first 20 minutes or so of Arthur's horrible mistreatment by the world in this movie, he hasn't really done anything wrong. I mean, he, he starts to do some really bad things in the latter half, but there's a pretty long period where he is just a punching bag. No, the world. He, yeah, he's just kind of pathetic and an easy target. And um, because this movie is inspired by and drawing on this whole um, kind of you know mid-70s to mid-80s cycle of what I think of as kind of the city as a hellhole movies that range from the Scorsese movies we talked about before to things like you know, The Warriors and, and Born in Flames. I mean, it's just just being in the city is reason enough Midnight to get Cowboy attacked. Even. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's just like the cities are shitholes. Um, if you're in a city, you're going to get attacked. Um, they're full of, you know, dangerous, mostly non-white people who will attack you, especially if you are white. Um, and it's, I mean, it's very interesting to me because this is, I mean, this imagery has really come back with a vengeance in the last couple of years. It was such a mainstay of Donald Trump's campaign and especially the way he um, and the Republican Party talk about Chicago. And it seemed so bizarre at the time because it's like, who believes this now? And I guess it's, I guess people who don't live in cities is the answer. Yeah, but, yeah. yeah. It, still is, it still is some sort of fantasy city that American psyche contains. Well, and it's just like plainly not persuasive in this first scene of violence or at least it wasn't to me because it like it it's totally plausible to me that these kids would steal the sign of a clown like i did stupid shit like that as mm-hmm. a teenager in terms of just like stealing something like something minor and seemingly uh not very important. Now I'm regretting that I ever said <laughs> that. It was a frisbee. I stole a frisbee and I gave it back. But I thought it was you were squeaky be, clean. Supposed to be a fun joke. Um, <laughs> it was a donor kidney. <laughs> yes. But anyway, so that part was plausible to me. But then when they, uh, you know, corner him in an alley and then they just start screaming, beat him up, beat him up and kicking him. It's just like, why? Why are you doing this? Why would these people do this? It doesn't. It only works as like a 
cliche, like third hand reference right. to old movies. And it's um, it's in those early scenes that I most felt that the essentially backlash critique that it's sort of admiring or fetishizing incel culture, mm-hmm. right? Like that seemed less true to me in the specificity what, of what <laughs> happens in the second half. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it seemed like it was sort of being set up by those early scenes because you really do just see him as this poor schmo who also we haven't even mentioned is mentally ill in a way that at first is not you know, just um, whatever superhero comic book menacing, but is really kind of pitiful and, you know, painful to watch. So we see him go to a social worker for a mandated weekly visit. He's supposed to bring his diary and keep a journal about what he's thinking and going through. And as we get a glimpse at his journal, it's this really creepy sort of place with like pornographic cutouts pasted in and weird misspelled rants about suicide. And, uh, you know, so in these early scenes, I think you're supposed to regard him as scary and menacing for sure, but also as someone that the system has failed who really needs help, which could have been a great road to go down in this documentary. I don't know why it was that all of those scenes left me so sour. I mean, the scenes in which you know, social workers are trying to reach out to him and he's shutting them off. I just I kept on finding that there was something glamorizing, even just the way he's smoking. I don't know, something about his almost James Dean like, you know, posture of macho remove in those scenes. You know, I just felt like you could easily walk out of those scenes thinking like it's really cool how he didn't give anything to that social worker, you know, the person trying to talk to him. Yeah, I'm sure we'll get more to the glamorizing. To me, the glamorizing happens most later when he dons a cool suit and dances around (laughs) to rock and roll part two. But uh, I can still see how there's a little bit of it in the early. I guess there, though, we're in a more familiar realm of kind of, you know, surrealism and superhero comics, etc. You know, the idea of him with green hair dancing on the steps, the scene scene that I can't wait to talk about. Uh, It seems like it fits into... A world that we're familiar with, whereas this beginning part of the movie seems to me to want to have it both ways. It wants to have a sob story, almost a la Precious or something. You know, it wants to have this Mm -hmm. social realist, you know, serious story about a person who has been abused and horribly neglected by the system, etc. And, you know, then it also wants to switch later on to this kind of jokey, nihilist, clockwork orange, you know, violence right. can be funny sort of mode. And so I don't know what we are to take away from right. that. Right. Well, and he's on all, all, on all these different meds um, because uh, one of the things Joaquin Phoenix said about the character is that he didn't want the character to align with anything in the DSM-5, like any sort of recognizable like mental condition. So he deliberately kind of, kind of scrambled that. So he's on like 11 different meds for what all different things. And then, of course... Um, because it's, you know, sort of metaphorically 1980 New York, uh, the city runs out of money um, and his social worker gets laid off. And, uh, you know, not only does he not have therapy, but he also kind of loses the source for the you know prescription for his meds. So, yeah, so it is not only just like society's abandoned him, but like the sort of social safety net is like fraying right. around him right. as well. And we should also say that one of the mental illnesses he has, which I assume is at least based on a symptom that could come mm-hmm, with regular is. mental illnesses, is this uh, inappropriate laughing, where it seems like especially when he's upset or scared about something, when you would normally cry or be angry, he goes into these eerie laughing fits. And of course, Joaquin Phoenix, being Joaquin Phoenix, has worked up this incredibly sick and disturbing laugh. Yes, yeah, pseudo Balbar effect mm-hmm. is to this movie what a spasmodic uh, dysphonia was to uh, us. 
you know, when, when people were sort of criticizing Lupita Nyong'o for using that, you know, vocal condition yeah, in the movie yeah. to say, like, this is a real, you know, condition. And, um, I mean, it's not clear to me, like, he, there is a scene at the beginning where he's doing the sort of weird, he's just kind of smiling and, like, playing with the kid on, on the bus in what seems like a kind, you know, fairly, like, genial and non-evil, freighted way. And then the kid's mom turns around and kind of gives him the stink eye. And then he starts doing his weird laughing and he hands out one of those sort of laminated cards saying, right. like, you know, uh, I, I can't help laughing. I have a condition. And it's not clear to me if we're supposed to kind of take that at face value or if this is just like you were saying for us like something he kind of you know forces himself into and then this is weird like passive aggressive thing of then well and people can't criticize me because i'm going to tell them that it's like that i can't help it but actually, oh i thought it was huh. sincere yeah. i felt like it was the real thing yeah, yeah I, I, mean, I, I mean it's there's so much kind of slipperiness and squishiness sure. in this movie i wish you'd well, given back the card by the way she never gave back the card and that annoyed me <laughs> He went the trouble that, of laminating so, it. Yeah. That's, that, that's an excuse for the killings right there. She yes. kept his laminated card, yeah. I mean. Yeah. So let's get into his living situation. And, you know, we can sort of start moving toward the part of the story where he and Robert De Niro cross paths. Because given that, as you said, Forrest, this is very much a homage to slash ripoff of Taxi Driver. You know, that, that story becomes significant. And King significant. of Comedy. And King yeah. of Comedy. Oh, and even more so King of Comedy. Um, so he works as a clown during the day. He lives with his mother. Um, in what's t- keeps being talked about as if it's this horribly broken down apartment, but it seems like an okay place for a 1980 Gotham. <laughs> Bunch to of me. New Yorkers in this room <laughs> looking at that apartment, being like, oh, "That looks roomy." <laughs> <laughs> the sink does not appear to be. Wood the kitchen sink is not in the bathroom. In order to so live that's there. good. Yeah. <laughs> but so he lives there with his mother, who's sort of senile, and also um, we learn increasingly over the course of the movie, kind of mentally ill herself, so that yeah. she can't really be trusted. One of the things that she is always rambling about is that she is expecting a letter any day now from Thomas Wayne, who we will recognize from Batman Lore as the father of Bruce Wayne, who's supposed to be a tycoon. Where does his money come from? I don't know if they ever say in the movie. He's just like a Wall Street tycoon or something. I, yeah, I mean, in this movie, I think they refer to Wall Street traders or stock traders who work for him. I think traditionally he is more of a real estate guy, but I'm not a big comics person and I don't think the movie yeah, gives much real estate tycoon might have been too you know yeah, politically right. freighted in this too kind of Trump like in this but yeah that they do make him um, you know he's this wealthy rich guy he is running they do some kind of interesting things with him in this movie they, he is running for mayor on a sort of you know recognizably right wing sort of hardcore law and order um, platform you know kind of clean up the city you know take out the trash get rid of the clowns so to speak um, and but then is also this figure of sort of, you know, malice or trouble for for Arthur and his mother. Right. And so it's established that Arthur's mother in her youth worked for um, for Thomas Wayne in some capacity, and she's obsessed with getting money for him for reasons we don't know for most of the movie. She just thinks that he is going to help take care of her and her son in her old age. Um, what else do we have to say about the middle section of the movie? Oh, the neighbor, when he meets Sazi Beats, the neighbor, which becomes this uh, this important thread in the movie. Yeah, I mean, so the scenes with her are one of the first places where we start to suspect that there might be some sort of slippage between the diegetic reality of the movie, like what is real within the world of the movie and what is just his uh, fantasy. Um, and I started to suspect pretty early on um, as soon as she says something like, you're so funny, Arthur, um, that it was a fantasy of his. But they start to sort of go on dates that seem too good to be true. For one thing, he had just been stalking her and she had apparently caught him and still went on a date with him. So there's your That's why fantasy, I was saying, I was saying, please let this be a fantasy because otherwise it would be, 
it just would have been so misogynistic and bizarre for that character right. to have taken an interest in someone so clearly off kilter and dangerous. Right. Yeah. It's not like Todd Phillips's fantasy. It's Arthur Fleck's yeah. fantasy. And also around this same time, we get to see Robert De Niro's uh, late night host character, um, who seems to be somewhat based on both Robert De Niro's character in The King of Comedy, in which he plays an aspiring stand up, and also on the Jerry Lewis character in that same movie. So in The King of Comedy, for listeners who haven't seen it, um, Robert De Niro plays this aspiring stand-up who really admires this late-night host played by Jerry Lewis, and and he really wants to be the Jerry Lewis character. And there's a similar dynamic here where Arthur Fleck wants to be Murray Franklin, the late-night host, or to appear on his show and for everyone to love him, um, but he's terrible at stand-up. And uh, we see, I think the first very clearly fantasy sequence is Arthur imagining himself in the audience of the Murray Franklin late night show and being invited up on stage and everybody loving him. And, and again, a very, continues. very explicit um, analogy between the father that he never had yeah. and, and Murray Franklin, right? I think that scene actually ends with Robert De Niro's character hugging him and saying, I, I would give it all up to have a son mm-hmm. like you. So maybe we're past what you might call the first act of the movie now. Arthur loses his job at Ha Ha's um, because he carries a gun to one of his um, one of his performances for kids in a hospital, not even with the int- intent of doing any harm. He seems to have smuggled it inside his clown costume because his his fellow clown gave it to him. Well, he doesn't so, want to get jumped again, so, right, yeah, so he's carrying right, he's a, carried for a loaded gun on him now. But, uh, but that incident where it goes skittering across the floor of the children's hospital gets him fired, so he's now at his low point, absolutely miserable, sitting on the subway in tragic clown makeup. And Sam, do you want to take it away? And here comes the beginning of act two and the first act of violence. Right. Yeah. So he's on the subway, um, which he's decided to do in in full clown makeup as one does. Um, And he sees these three, you know, sort of white wall street bros, um, very drunk, um, harassing a woman on the the subway. And he decides to kind of step in and say, cut it out. And these guys um, then turn their attention to him. Um, and actually, doesn't he start laughing uncontrollably? Yeah. Oh yes, oh yes. All right, yeah. I think he does want to step in. I think you're right. That yeah, he, yeah. But then he gets one of his his laughter attacks, and everybody, including the woman, is just mystified. Right, right. So these guys um, decide to uh, kick the crap out of him uh, while singing "Send in the Clowns" um, because they are also big Sondheim fans. <laughs> Huge Apparently, Sondheim yes. Fans. I mean, yeah. as, as as all Wall Street 1970s bros. They were on are. their way to Marie's crisis. Yes, to do <laughs> <laughs> yes. Oh, man. Uh, and then Arthur, who still has his gun, uh, goes. Goes, uh, to use the appropriate historical metaphor, goes full Bernie Getz on them, uh, guns them all down, um, escapes. Conveniently empty subway car yes. and platform. Yes, but is nonetheless seen somehow so that they know that a clown did this. And he becomes, while he is kind of on the run, he becomes a symbol for this sort of, you know, Occupy Wall Street esque uh, uprising across the city with this motto that kind of becomes uh, kill the rich. So his act of of sort of defending himself, but, um, you know, killing these three, you know, Wall Street banker guys who turn out to work for Thomas Wayne, incidentally, of course, um, then becomes the seed for this sort of growing uh, dissatisfaction and unrest to kind of coalesce around in Gotham. Yeah. Yeah, and we should describe the movement. I mean, as, as you say, Sam, it's it's a little bit Occupy Wall Street for sure, especially with all the kill the rich stuff. So they have signs saying resist, which is very much, you know, Trump resistance, obviously. 
Um, they have the clown masks that they wear a bunch, which seem very kind of anonymous e, as in the group Anonymous, who wear the Guy Fox right. masks. And not unlike Antifa groups as well, right, who wear masks and scarves. And yeah, and like there's that. a little, there's a pinch of like the alt-right thrown in there as well. I mean, this is where the movie starts to get, you know, sort of politically nonspecific to the point of being disingenuous, because they do seem to be kind of both Antifa and like an alt-right at the same time, which is they're not the same thing you know but it's just like people are mad and they're rising up and the movie doesn't particularly care about why i'm glad you guys noticed the sign because yeah the 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 protest seemed so muddled that to me they just seemed like vague symbols of of rioting where you almost didn't know like does todd phillips think rioting is a good thing or a bad thing does it depend on what it's for if it's good or bad you know i mean it was almost like a music video that was just enjoying the the anarchy of you know cars burning in the streets and stuff like that that they just have the signs that say resist, but not resist what right. is perfect. Yeah, that, that sign is shown multiple times. It also appears at least once upside down, which I suspect might be another way in which Todd Phillips is trying to say, like, it's kind of like the resistance, <laughs> but also kind of not. It's kind of the resistance gone wrong. You know, it's the whole movie's a Rorschach test, and politically speaking, I think. Right. And there's one moment to do with the Bernie Getz subway shooting that I wanted to get to, because I think it's, it's one of the first moments that you see what is unique about Joaquin's performance. And my favorite part parts of this movie, in fact, are the dances that he invents after he has essentially starting with that scene. Every time he has a big kill, right, his sort of celebration is that he goes off by himself somewhere. It's in a bathroom, it seems to be, right? Like one of the bathrooms in the subway system or something right after the first killing. And he does this kind of balletic, narcissistic, you know, self-adoring dance, which is completely different from the way he moves as Arthur Fleck for the rest of the movie, right? Arthur Fleck is this really gaunt, he's lost tons of weight, and he walks in almost a way as if his back is deformed or something. Which is very like, it's a lot like the way Freddie Quell uh, walks in The Master. Like, there's a way in which Joaquin Phoenix is drawing on a whole bunch of things that he's done in previous movies. Yeah, and I mean, you have to imagine that after he's played, you know, in a movie like The Master, or you're never really here, like, this is kind of a cakewalk for him, you know? He doesn't appear bored. I mean, if anything, he's over-invested in this role, but, you know, it's not anything that we didn't already know he could do with a good script. He apparently lost 52 pounds. I mean, he looks very unhealthy. And And he was very big before because he got so big for You Were Never Really Here. Right. It kind of just looks like it's weight loss for its own sake. We're not shown any reason that he should be anorexic, and yet the character appears to be anorexic. I mean, yeah, and that's a choice, again, to me, that just seems like it's just there to be, like, extreme with three X's. You know what I mean? It's one of those edgelord moments in this movie that just really makes you want to Right. I mean, there is like, you know, one of the I mean, there are not like a ton of memorable shots for me. And one of of the problems for me in discussing this movie, it's been, you know, I think a month since I've seen it less than a month. And it's still like a little it's kind of gone from Mm. my head. Like it did not sort of stick around and and grow rich. But there's a shot that stuck with me where Arthur is in the locker room at haha's or whatever his clown agencies after he's been beaten and there's a shot kind of an overhead shot of him on this bench with his shirt off and it, you just sort of see his like his protruding spine and his bruised back and his his shoulders are kind of in and his head's down and he just looks like this kind of spineless like undersea creature there's nothing like recognizably human about him in that moment and that i found uh, kind of compellingly weird and and powerful. In a yeah. Way that, uh, Again, to my theory the that yeah. like we owe it to Joaquin. You know, I feel yeah. like essentially this script was handed to him and it had things like act weird, do dance, you know, and he <laughs> do a kooky laugh. He came up with incredible details about those things, and in particular, the dancing. I think is mm-hmm. just really striking because it's it's beautiful dancing and it expresses a, this kind of. Um, character that's completely it's it's as if it's expressing something in arthur's character that we don't see any place else including in anything he says 
Yeah. And I mean, in the movie, it really lets him run with it. There's a lot of scenes in this movie that are basically just the camera holding on Joaquin Phoenix in a room alone as he just does weird stuff. Right. And I feel like in those moments, I'm thematically thinking we get it, Todd Phillips. Right. But I'm also aesthetically thinking like those those moves are really kind Uh of exquisitely crafted to express, you know, whatever it is that he's trying to express. I mean, this is a little bit like saying, like, Michelangelo did a great job on stenciling those <laughs> those words onto a parking lot. <laughs> you know, like, right. all of his artistry is kind of wasted. So pretty well into the movie, after it's been established that there's this dangerous clown uprising happening all over the town, Arthur discovers this letter uh, that his mother has written but not sent um, to Thomas Wayne, the father of Bruce Wayne. And uh, Forrest, do you want to take that away, what he learns and what he does with it? Right. So the whole movie, we keep kind of wondering, is this mother character just naive, thinking that Thomas Wayne will help? And then there's a little bit of a twist because the letter implies, uh, it's you know, it says something like, Dear Thomas... I remember our times fondly, like you you need to help out our son. Um, so the suggestion here is that Arthur Fleck is in fact Thomas Wayne's son, making him, I guess, Bruce, Bruce Wayne, Batman's older brother? His half-brother. <laughs> um, and then the movie, it, it takes this sort of turn into a more conventional Batman-type movie for a while, where there's lots of kind of knowing references to Batman lore. Where So Fleck goes to Wayne Manor, and uh, meets a young Bruce Wayne who who does this, like, he's on a playscape or something, and he spins down a fireman's pole <laughs> in a very kind of Batman-y fashion, even though he's only 11 years old or something. I like that it's, it's a reference to the, to the TV show, which, of course, like, no one wants to even remember, <laughs> but it's not even, like, a reference to, like, the Dark Knight. The Batman fire pole is, like, Adam West. Oh, Batman. wow. Yeah, that's that's kind of nice. Yeah. Right. Um, and, but of course, Arthur Fleck comes off as just like a creepy pedophile type around, um, this young boy. And we even get a brief sort of cameo from Alfred who comes out and is like, stay away from my son. And, and Alfred at that point tells Arthur Fleck, look, your mom was crazy. They never actually had a relationship, like in the sense of mentally ill. Um, And institutionalized. And institutionalized. um, And in fact, you were adopted. Oh, did you not know that? Which sends um, Arthur to Arkham Asylum. I I think it's Arkham Asylum, right? Where uh, really randomly, Brian Tyree Henry, a.k.a. Paperboy from Atlanta and a very accomplished actor at this point, um, is just there as like the receptionist at Arkham Asylum or the administrative assistant, I guess, as he says. Todd Phillips must have a very good ask because he got De Niro as well. I mean, he's just like getting these people for the not impressive script. He's also Spider-Man's dad in Into the Spider-Verse. So this is one of those Marvel DC... uh, uh, crossovers. Oh, wow. Yeah. But yeah, uh, he has a very small role, and in a very implausible moment, he breaks security by essentially just getting down the old file of Arthur's mother and reading it aloud to him, and then suddenly saying, wait, we shouldn't be doing this. Wait a minute. Aren't you the person that I'm reading about in this file? Perhaps I shouldn't give it to you. Yeah. Wait, I actually wanted to ask you guys about this part. You know, we try not to talk about the movies before we tape these spoiler specials. Is it deliberately ambiguous whether or not he's actually Thomas Wayne's son? It, it felt yeah, to yeah. me like one of the many Rorschach test elements of this movie where it could be either that Thomas Wayne is lying and that they sort of gaslit this woman and forced her into an asylum, or it could be that she actually was mentally ill. 
Yeah, um, but it could be the sort of like, you know, 19th century institutionalization where right. you can just like, you know, say that a woman is having uterus problems and like put her in a mental institution for 20 years and just like fake records saying that your yeah, son's adopted. Yeah, I mean, I feel like both things were sort of true. It seems to me like she was a mentally ill woman who worked for Thomas Wayne who may or may not have been impregnated by him. I don't think we're supposed to know that. Yeah. Right? Because it's it's later suggested that he's adopted and they even have the adoption papers in the file. But then, of course, he finds that photo, that old photo of her you know, with um, T.W. scribbled yep. on the back that says, I love your smile. But, of course, she, as a delusional person, could have written that on there herself. Right. Or it could have been a smaller, just your casual, everyday <laughs> office sexual harassment without them ever actually having an affair. <laughs> right. I mean, I, I leaned I'm, I leaned sort of more definitively towards no, but it may just because I sort of so, like, hate the idea that, like, actually Batman and the Joker are half-brothers. Like, it's bad enough. Especially if there's a sequel to this. God help yeah, us. Yeah, I mean, it's bad enough. Like, the whole idea of kind of explaining the Joker in the first place kind of goes against, like, what the character has always been, which is just this kind of, he's just like a chaos agent who doesn't believe in anything. So actually, to like, I mean, it was controversial, I think, even when, like, the Tim Burton Batman, like, gave him a first name or something like that. People were like, you can't give the Joker a name. Um, so then to have this whole sort of, you know, kind of gothic novel, like backstory to it, and then to make him Batman's half brother on top of that, it's just like, or like a very, um, sort of Joseph Campbell chosen one type backstory, right? Like if he's, if he's actually the prince and didn't realize it all along, I mean, that's, you know, it's Joseph Campbell, it's great expectations, it's everything, but it would seem to play into his own delusions of grandeur. So I think we should get to some of his last big acts of violence because we haven't gotten there yet. And as much as this movie plunges you into this dank nihilistic universe that's incredibly unpleasant, there's not that much violence until the last third of the movie or so. Right? So, right. Yeah, so Arthur becomes sort of like doubly famous because he is famous as the sort of unknown perpetrator of these clown murders. But then he also kind of goes like the 1980s equivalent of viral. I think we haven't really mentioned it, but he is sort of an aspiring stand-up comedian as well, which is probably the worst possible career that he could choose. Um, but so he goes to an open mic night, completely bombs, um, Footage of this ends up on the talk show run by Robert De Niro's character, Murray Franklin. He just keeps playing it over and over and making fun of it. And people love how horrible this clip is and and laugh at it. And it becomes such a sensation um, that they eventually um, kind of track him down and invite Arthur on the Murray Franklin show. Yeah, which is kind of a David Letterman type stunt. You know, it, just, it didn't really fit with the uh, the world of how the talk show was established. I mean, it's kind of a minor quibble, but Robert De Niro's talk show makes no sense as an entertainment product. You know, it's sort of Johnny Carson it's a little mainstream, o- but then it has these kind of, you know, essentially, like you say, sort of something looking toward viral videos. And and I assume it's also like the last name is also sort of like a tribute to Joe Franklin, you know, who's like the New York, you know, radio and TV host around that period. And so, was he an edgy kind of boundary? No, but he would that? have on sort of like more just kind of like funny, like local weirdos and ah, stuff. It was okay. just more of a local show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. maybe so, it is referencing yeah. that. But before he goes on the Murray Franklin show, uh, there's at least two more important murders that he commits that we have to <laughs> Sorry cover. to keep track well, of all the murders. Okay. So yeah. what basically happens is, you know, there's this famous Batman comic that um, Alan Moore wrote called The Killing Joke, where the whole idea is that, like, Joker became who he was just because he had one really bad day and he's about to do the same thing to Batman. And in this case, th- th- this movie includes a reference to that. I-, I think it's an homage to that, where at some point... 
um, Arthur even says, like, I had a really bad day. And what happens on his really bad day, although I have to say he's had a number of pretty bad <laughs> days recently. He's been beaten down twice in the past, like, week or so. And lost his job. And lost his job. But on this specific bad day, I think it's all in 24 hours that basically he, A, confronts Thomas Wayne and Thomas Wayne completely denies him as the son and, in fact, even punches him in the nose. And, B, it's right around the same time and I think on the same day that he loses his mom who, what, she has, like, a stroke or something? I mean, she's been clearly Yeah, I think she's supposed to have a stroke. Um, so he is effectively loses what he thinks are both of his parents on, um, on the same day. He doesn't just lose his mom. <laughs> his mom has a stroke, is lying in the hospital, and then after he learns the stuff that he learns from the Brian Tyree Henry file, he smothers his mom. Oh, yes, yes. <laughs> Minor detail. <laughs> Uh, so yes, an aspect of the bad day is his fault. Um, <laughs> and so, so he finds out he's invited on the show and then we get to kind of the big, you know, it's, it's game day. It's the show day sequence, which starts out with him putting on all of this makeup. He mostly just puts on the white makeup on himself and his coworkers who have found out about his mom come by to mourn with him. And he, you know, shoots the coworker who gave him the gun, who, by the way, is like the Yellow King from True Detective. Yeah, Glenn Fleshler. He has the great name Glenn Fleshler, which is just so suitable for the big fleshy villains that he plays. And yeah, I mean, that's the kind of scene that I personally was dreading walking into this movie. I thought there was going to be a lot more of that kind of splatter, you know, and just the kind of scenes that you watch through closed fingers. And, you know, he just stabs Glenn Fleshler's character in the eye and bashes his. It's a little bit like the end of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, right, where you just take someone's body and sort of bash it against every surface. And those scenes are really, really hard to watch. There's also a would-be comic moment at the end of that horrible uh, murdering Glenn Fleshler scene where the other clown who came over to see how... Arthur was doing, who is a little person played by Lee Gill, sort of has to sneak his way out and even has to ask for help opening the door because he can't reach up to the lock to let himself out. And so there's this moment of combination, kind of queasy suspense, not knowing if he's going to be killed as well or whether he's going to make it out. And he does make it out, which, of course, is an incredibly unstrategic decision on Arthur's part, because wouldn't he go straight to the cops? But this movie doesn't really take place in a world where you are supposed to think about things like that. Well, he's also maybe not the most reasonable person also he's seemingly planning to kill himself later that night on the show so oh that's true at that moment we think from his little enactments of what he's going to do on the the murray night show that he is going to commit suicide before he does that he goes down the hall to sort of um have his last encounter with zazie beats who he sort of has been presented as having this you know relationship with all along and even there's even a shot of her like in the hotel room uh with his mother and it's in this last thing that the movie shows us definitively that he is this whole thing has been in his head and it replays a bunch of their scenes together um but reshot so that only joaquin phoenix is in the frame um and then there's kind of an ominous beat in their conversation, and then it just cuts back to him um, going back into his apartment. And you don't, I mean, you would sort of have to assume that he killed her because otherwise she would definitely run to the, go to the police, but that doesn't actually 
show you that. So that is such I, a little open I hate open that. I think that's the most reprehensible moment in the whole movie is the fact that we never learn what happens to Zossie Beats and her small child who are sleeping in the next room. Right. Which, you know? which I care about. Like maybe the only person in the movie I actually do care about. Right. And, I mean, it's just that her character has been given such incredibly short shrift. Essentially, the only real moment that we've seen her, that she wasn't a, fa- a projected fantasy of his mind, is that little encounter they have in the elevator at the beginning, right? I mean, I think I literally said in my in my head while I was watching it, like, wow, Zazie Beast really got a dog shit part in this movie. <laughs> um, so, and yeah, and it's, but it, and it's also part of this weird continuum where both uh, where she and the social worker that he sees at the beginning and then all the way at the end, there's another scene with him with a, a social worker in um, an asylum. I um, mean, all three of those characters are black women. There are not a lot of black characters in, in the movie. And generally, you mentioned Brian Tyree Henry before for us. So there's some sort of, uh, I would not go so far as to say that the movie is like saying anything with that because I don't think it's sophisticated enough to, but there is definitely like an, an obvious like linkage between those characters, all of whom he looks to as, you know, people who are supposed to kind of understand and listen to him. And right. he has a big problem with not being listened to. Right. I mean, all of them are essentially there in the movie solely to sort of nurture him and offer him help, which he then rejects. And, you know, as we'll see in some cases, maybe rejects via murder. Yes. Um, Okay. well, we've now gotten him through his no good, very bad day at the end of which he's scheduled to appear on the Murray Knight talk show. So um, and here's where things really, really get citational. Right. I mean, it's not just a taxi driver that's being referenced here and the king of comedy, but also network, Mm -hmm. you know, the whole kind of 70s tradition of, um, you know, an act of violence potentially being committed on live television. It seems like that was a big fear of the 1970s that appeared a lot in kind of dystopian visions of the time. So that's what we're fearing is going to happen on the show, especially because he's getting more and more unhinged. I mean, he was just getting going on there to do his normal stand-up routine, but instead he comes out in full Joker makeup uh, and he's confronted about that, although ultimately De Niro says it's fine. He can he can go on in the makeup. He wants to be introduced as Joker. So here's where the origin story is really like clicking into gear, right? He's becoming the... Um, the evil supervillain that he's always wanted to And be. he even has that trailer moment when he's like, could you introduce me as Joker? <laughs> I didn't see the trailer, thank <laughs> yes, God. Yes. So so what happens, Sam? Take it away. What happens when he um, he steps through the rainbow-colored curtains onto the... Well, so he gets out. I guess he does um, a little bit of his, his uh, stand-up routine, um, which is also remains uh, not funny. Um, and he goes over and sort of sits on the couch and has this sort of barbed back and forth with Murray Franklin and uh, confesses to uh, the murders that uh, everyone has been talking about for weeks. Um you know, the conversation goes uh, downhill from there, as you might expect. And he kind of culminates it in saying, um, do you want to hear a joke? Uh, what do you get when you cross a mentally ill loner with a society that abandons him and treats him like trash? You get what you fucking deserve. And then he shoots Robert De Niro in the head. I can't remember now. We, when we see him kind of practice on his own couch what he's going to do, he holds the gun to his own chin. Does he begin to do that before shooting no. De Niro? Or does All he, just he keeps go doing to- is just saying like, knock, knock. He mm-hmm. needed to workshop that joke a little. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> it's just like knock, knock, and then he shoots himself. That's kind of that's as far as he's worked it out previously, mm-hmm. right? But he doesn't. I'm just saying on the on the, on the actual night, he doesn't even make any move toward shooting himself. He doesn't. You don't see him change his mind about that. He just goes straight to shooting De Niro in the head. Yeah, right. we, I think we don't quite know when he changed his mind exactly. Right. Right. And, and another interesting thing about that moment that we should maybe say is that it, while you know after he's confessed to the murder, I think it's somebody in the audience or maybe it's just somebody on set says something like get this guy out of here but Murray Franklin the late night host is like no 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 like let's talk to this guy 
In other words, there's a brief sort of conversation about whether or not you give this kind of person a platform. And then right after um, he shoots Murray Franklin and everyone runs away, there's this shot of, it's kind of like the only shot in this movie that I really, really like. There's a shot of a bunch of different televisions showing a bunch of different news networks um, and, and TV stations and stuff. And they're all like running versions of his speech. In other words, they're just kind of like amplifying his message. Mm-hmm. Um, and which, you know, there had already been this uh, joker movement, I guess we could call it, in the streets. And it sends it up to this whole other level where now we're into these riots in Times Square and stuff. Right. And that's where that's where I was saying that it sort of turns into a, a music be, video, oh, essentially. Okay. Essentially, right? I mean, there's that long orgiastic scene, which I thought would be the ending of the movie. And it seems like it would have made more sense. Not that it would have made it a good movie if this was the ending either. But, you know, there's the there's the big outdoor bacchanalia, right? Mm-hmm. Clown bacchanalia where, you know, cops are being attacked and cars are being burned, etc. And so we see him riding through this clown bacchanalia in the back of a cop car because he's been apprehended after shooting the Robert De Niro character. He's then broadsided by an ambulance is that right he suddenly an ambulance crashes into him in the midst of all this chaos and conveniently kills i guess that or knocks out the driver of the cop car but instead of taking that opportunity to escape golden opportunity to just you know blend into the crowd he ends up standing on top of a car and becoming this kind of center of the rally and that's another moment i think where the um you know, the sort of fascist populist analogy is is most blatant in this movie right is that it's sort of ending on him, we don't know if it's his fantasy, but I assume it's it's real that he's sort of lording it over this group of subservient clowns who are all worshiping his nihilistic violence. We should mention that one of those clowns takes it upon himself to uh, gun down uh, Thomas and Martha Wayne in the uh, alley behind a movie theater. Right. I wonder why make, put it, they put that act of violence into another clown's hands. Like, why not just have him do it? Isn't it his revenge to take? I yeah, I've have a I have a couple of possible reads on that. One would just be. Um, that it ties to part of what Sam was saying before about the idea, this this notion that Joker is like an idea more than he is a person. Um, and so, in a way, he did kill Thomas Wayne, right. even if it wasn't literally him. And another part of me feels a little bit more cynically about it. You know, they keep saying this is a one-off movie, but I could see a sequel that plays with that a little bit. And maybe the Joker turned out to be this person who was just... An, inspired by um, Arthur Fleck rather than actually being Arthur Fleck. I think there's a few different ways they could go with it. But There's a little was, bit of, you know, we are all Joker in this. Like yeah. he's just kind of the person who, like this was in the air and he was just the spark for it, but it kind of could have been anyway. He is um, not only sort of anti-super anti-hero, you know, there is nothing special about Arthur and that in a way is what makes him kind of the ideal figurehead. Right. Certainly not supernatural, right? I mean, there's nothing about him that any any murderer couldn't make happen, except that there have to be so many coincidences for him to get away with the stuff that he gets away with. Yeah, the only problem with this Joker is that he would not really, especially, you know, since he's about 30 years older than Bruce Wayne, I would not really put up much of a fight with Batman should they ever come <laughs> face to face. But maybe so. I was thinking about that age discrepancy and thinking maybe he'll grow up to be the Jack Nicholson Batman, who's, you know, considerably older yeah. than Michael Keaton. So you were saying you assume all of this is real. And you were also talking about the increasing all of number this of, being being the the like the final riot? shot in the riot in Times Square and Joker he like smudges blood on his face to make a smile and stuff. And you were also talking about how there's like a weird number of coincidences that allow him to keep sort of escaping and prevailing. And then we got to talk about the final shot, which shows him in a mental hospital. And I 
think that there's a, you know, this movie has been increasingly slippery throughout the whole thing. And I think we're just supposed to wonder whether any of it was real, whether it was, whether the entire last half of the movie was a fantasy, whether the whole movie was a fantasy of just him in the mental hospital. So the real um, story of what's happening is like Arthur Fleck takes a nap. Well, it, <laughs> it, it does. Well, right. I mean, there's a precedent for that, right? For one thing, it's an aspect of both Taxi Driver and King of Comedy that mm-hmm. in the end, we're not exactly sure mm-hmm. how much is is real. And then, you know, you don't have to go that far to like another Robert De Niro movie like um, Once Upon a Time in America, where there's a question of whether the entire movie was hallucinated. And I I, I mean, there there's weird things that happen. Like, for example, when he goes over to see Zossie uh, Beats's character, her door just opens. Right. Which is completely unexplained. And I mean, one possible explanation for that is that even that interaction was a sort of fantasy. Right. I mean, there is the f- definitely a fantasy part. There is also this weird thing where, you know, this classic kind of movie theater Batman scene, they do show, um, you know, and it's been sort of, you know, Gotham, like late 70s-esque up until that point. And then they show in the movie theater, there are three posters for movies specifically from 1981, Zora, the Gay Blade, and Wolfen, um, and I'm forgetting the third one, but that is like actually they're all precisely 1981, which is a weird place for the movie to get sort of so granularly specific. Um but yeah, then there's this kind of kicker in Arkham Asylum where he is, you know, meeting with yet another, you know, uh, black female therapist. There's yet another kind of ominous cut. And then you see him just kind of, you know, dragging his feet down this uh, white, you know, asylum hallway, leaving these bloody trails behind him. So we assume that he's just killed this woman. And then there's this weird um, kind of slapsticky moment where like almost just the credits are, are rolling. I think he kind of goes down and around a corner and then you see like an orderly kind of like run after him, you know, uh, just across the back of the frame. Like it's a like a Marx Brothers movie or something yeah. all of a sudden, which is just. It is very slapstick. And then they go the other way, right? Yeah. The very last thing you see is them running the other way. So it's a kind of comical ending that suggests like crazy Joker. He's somehow going to make his escape and we don't know what's going to happen. But he's somehow going to outsmart and or kill right. this orderly and be out in the in the wide world starting to cause havoc the end i mean that tone of the ending that last joke and even the fact that with the way that the social workers death is played off as a joke really with the footprints sort of reminded me of the end of silence of the lambs you know i mean just gone through all this horror and you're all sweating and shaking from the suspense of the climax and then there's this jokey ending about how he's going to go have an old friend for dinner (laughs) and you're supposed to leave it yeah you're supposed to leave it on this wry note and it just doesn't really land yeah (laughs) <laughs> Be like if the ending of No Country for Old Men was just like, wah, wah, wah. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or is it? Yeah. <laughs> did you guys think it was very clear what was real and what was fake, or did did the question that I raised also occur to you guys that you think it could be that vast portions of the movie, if not the whole movie, hmm. were? Uh, a fantasy. I uh, partly, I just generally err like I I hate it when movies do that. Um, so unless they're like very explicit about it, I I generally sort of like reject that. Yeah, like, just I think on, I would have just to on say, principle because I don't want it to be true. Yeah, but I also feel like, <laughs> like let Todd Phillips do the work. You know, I'm not yeah. going to spin some fan theory about what part is true and not true. Like I actually want the movie to do some of the work for that. I guess I at least assume that everything up through. Killing his mother, killing Glenn Fleshler, killing Robert De Niro, the riot. I think that happens. The Zosti Beats thing we know is a fantasy, but it's true that we don't know exactly how much of it is a fantasy. Well, and then also, so in addition to like the door being open and stuff, uh, you know, the hallucinations or whatever you want to call it, it's not a real thing. This movie is so bad when it comes to <laughs> depicting people with mental illness. But, but um, setting that aside briefly, the his fantasies about Zossie Beats, the imagined parts, they start before he's off medication. So there's mm-hmm. not really like any clear 
moment at which they begin. Right. Um, which to me suggests there's not, you know, there's not really a clear moment when they end either. Right. Right. I mean, it's just a kind of all purpose. Like, why does he do it? Because he's crazy. Right. <laughs> well, I mean, I guess maybe we're at the moment where I, you have to ask the big question of just like, why? What is this movie trying to accomplish? How do we respond to it? You know, like at the beginning, I was saying maybe I'm cl- I'm more on the school marm side of the spectrum than you guys. But I also just feel like maybe by making too big a deal of this movie's kind of childish nihilism, you know, it's it's elevating above the amount of attention that it needs. I really just sort of want it to flop at the box office so there aren't more sequels oh and movies like it, you know? I Yeah, I would like that too. I don't think that's going to happen. I mean, even a movie as bad as Venom made, I, what was it? I think over a billion dollars and it got significantly worse reviews than this one which is a much less popular character. I mean, it's possible that people will go to this movie and just be grossed out and that it'll get really bad word of mouth but I don't think that's going to happen I think it's going to be a huge hit and people are going to be pushing for it for Oscars and I mean Joaquin Phoenix like maybe should be probably should be nominated for it um, but I mean I think the, the the best actor race at least right now is basically forecast you know so, so like I mean he, he is probably the front runner at this point I think. him mm-hmm. and like Adam Driver for uh, yes no marriage story really, yep yeah. yep Wow. Well, then maybe we will have to be here talking about the Joker part two in February, at some point. Yeah. yeah sorry. <laughs> I think that the image from this movie that will stay with me, and it's not because of the filmmaking <laughs> or the brilliance of Todd Phillips, it's just because of Joaquin, is him dancing on the steps. That's just a beautiful uh-huh. moment. It's a total music video. It doesn't need any context at all to mean anything, you know, but as this sort of expression of the freedom of and, you know, an artistry that one finds even in the darkest arts. I just thought that was kind of a beautiful moment. And that is, I mean, that is why I can't sort of totally dismiss this this movie or even say that I didn't sort of like it in that way because I feel like there is like, that moment's kind of also like a meme and I know that it's like, it's going to be, you know, appropriated by alt-right shit posters. Like I, I'm 100% sure of that. As and I matched up with Taylor Swift. I'm yes, sure it's happened yeah, already. But it's also like there is like something kind of, powerful and like potent that this movie taps into like almost by accident in in some ways but it just kind of you know it left me like feeling something and that feeling was in many cases not uh very good or or pleasant but um but it works in a kind of like brute sort of brainstem kind of way yeah i feel like the the kind of fanboys that like i mean i don't even want to cite specific titles but like if you want to, if you want to have a really edge lord experience at the movies, this is definitely your your movie this put, fall. Put that on the poster. <laughs> Dana Stevens, that's Slate. Set raves. <laughs> edge lords, gather ye round. All right, thanks, guys, and please come. Do come back in and just hold my hands through the uh, the, the sequel spoiler if this one gets a gets a second movie. With pleasure. Thanks to you all for listening. You can subscribe to the Slate Spoiler Special podcast feed. And if you like the show, you can rate and review it in the Apple Podcast Store or wherever you get your podcasts. And please, if you have any suggestions for movies or TV shows you'd like us to spoil or other feedback to share, send it to spoilers at slate.com. Our engineer today was Merritt Jacob. Our producer is Rosemary Belson. For Forrest Wickman and Sam Adams, this is Dana Stevens. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time. <laughs>